Now, the words politics and political and politician are thrown around as dirty words. Want to minimize an issue? Call it political or playing politics. Want to demean an opponent? Call them a politician. And with good reason. Those in power have abused that power to create a country of winners and losers based on nothing more than skin color, nation of origin, the name used for the divine, the makeup of one's body, or the person who one loves. But in a true democracy, we are all political. It's how we get the work of the people done. When we abstain from politics, we give up our voice, our space, and our power. But that voice, space, and power does not stay empty. Those that want a structure of domination are all too willing to rush into the space that we vacate. So what if we saw politics and the government as ours or even as us? What if we treat the governor's mansion and the Capitol building as our houses? And when something is dirty in our house, <laughs> what do we do? We clean it up. We demand better because this is not the Missouri we want. We want to create an environment where the people thrive and are healthy in mind, body, and soul. So even though I didn't vote for Mike Parson, yeah, he is my governor. Even though I cannot vote for all legislators, they are my legislature. This means they have a responsibility to me and all other Missourians. It then becomes our duty to speak up when they make decisions that harm us, our families, and our neighbors. We gather tonight in, to take an accounting of our Jefferson City and list what supports the people and what yet needs to be cleaned up. So with that, let's get started. To bring us words of inspiration is the president of the Board of Metropolitan Congregations United, the Reverend Wendy Bruner. Reverend Bruner is also the pastor at Peace United Church of Christ in Webster Groves, Missouri. And you might also find her at a Medicaid expansion rally, and I'm also proud to call her my pastor. Reverend Bruner. Thanks, Kevin. Let's start with these few words. Your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. These words are familiar to many of us. They are the second phrase of what followers of Jesus call the Lord's Prayer. Many of us recite this prayer on Sunday morning. Sometimes we say this prayer and receive comfort from its familiar words. Sometimes we say this prayer without thinking much about what we're saying at all. Sometimes our minds wander and while we repeat the words of prayer by rote, we ponder what we'll have for lunch or think about what comes next in the worship service. What if I told you these words spoken by Jesus when the disciples, Jesus' students, asked him how they might pray, what if I told you they were a plea to systems change under an oppressive empire? What if I told you these words were revolutionary? You see, God's realm, kingdom, empire, looks nothing like what worldly empires look like. Worldly empires where a few hold all the power and money and the rest of the people struggle to survive, where a few people make rules, change rules, don't follow rules when they don't feel like it. Rules uh, where folks are separated, pushed out, forgotten when they don't fit the societal norm created by those in charge, when fences are erected to keep people out and make people disappear. In God's kingdom, things look so different from worldly empires. In God's kingdom, everyone has enough, not only to survive, but to thrive. They have economic stability. Jesus lived out what it was like in God's kingdom. He walked through the countryside providing health care to anyone and everyone who needed it. No questions asked, no income requirements, no percentage points to fall below. Didn't matter if Jesus 
uh, to Jesus if you were a Roman soldier or a hardworking farmer who barely had two coins to rub together. If you were sick, Jesus took care of you. Jesus knew people made mistakes. He talked about forgiving over and over again. Every person has worth, he said. Every person, every person, every person is created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made in God's kingdom, where shalom, that's comprehensive well-being, is the order of the day. And so when we pray your kingdom come as in heaven, so on earth, we are praying for a change in the systems that demean and disrespect people. We're praying for a change in structures that bet on the future of our children by building detention centers and prisons instead of funding equitable education. We're praying for a change in policies so that everyone can access and receive health care. We're praying for a livable wage for economic stability so you don't have to make a decision this month between paying the rent and paying for food. We're praying for water that's safe to drink, air that's clean to breathe, and for land that's free of death-making chemicals. Oh, and one last thing. This prayer requires our feet. I don't know if you caught it, but right there in the middle of the sentence sits our call. Your will be done. We must do the work. We must join God's work. Praying isn't enough. Hoping for a better tomorrow isn't enough. It's just not that easy. We're called to participate. Do not take this prayer lightly. When you pray it, you're making a commitment to doing the work of establishing God's kingdom on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. We are praying for a revolution. We are working to make it happen. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Absolutely. Thank you, Reverend Bruner. To start off our recap tonight, Latricia Dandy, an organizer for the Juvenile Justice Task Force, is going to talk to us about an issue that MCU has been fighting for several years, and we know it as Raise the Age. Latricia, I'll turn things over to you. Thank you so much, Kevin. Greetings. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us. So as you heard, now let's reflect. 2018 was a big win for MCU along with Campaign for Youth Justice, who worked successfully to pass the Raise the Age. It changed the law on the age at which youth is automatically certified as an adult when detained by the police. We raised it to 17 to take in effect in January of 2021. The change required extra funding for the juvenile division to accommodate for extra youth, housing, meals, education, counseling, and medical care, etc. In January of 2020, Governor Parson and his office tries to dismantle the Raise the Age Bill, taking the mm -hmm. age limit to 12 years old. Once that wasn't approved, there was a blue ribbon panel created to oversee the funding that backed the Raise the Age appropriation. Due to some language barriers, Raise the Age was pushed a little bit back and didn't go into implementation. But thanks to a section of Senate Bill 53, you will hear a little bit more of that detail a little bit later, that passed at the end of May, 
was set raised the age to go into implementation. As long as Gov- Governor Portion didn't veto the bill by the end of June, which he did. So it has been implemented, approved, and appointed in the state of Missouri. Why is that important? As an impacted parent of the court system, it's very important to see that juveniles stay in the system of juveniles and be treated as children and not adults. Adult imprisonment is not good for isolation for our youth. They're still growing. Their minds are still developing. We need to not only keep them in the juvenile settings, but put the resources in the communities that the children need to break the school to prison pipeline, to break the statistics of what they what 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 the what the community may see of the youth. There's still work to do, but thanks to our legislators, we're gonna give you big thanks tonight for putting that bill in implementation for the youth. So if you all are interested in breaking that school to prison pipeline, check us out at Metropolitan Congregations United. See the good works that we've put in to organize the community, the legislator, and many hearts around raising the age to do what's right for our youth and our communities. Thank you so much. Thank you, Latricia. And thanks again for uh, reminding us that uh, our legislators did pass something that is good for our youth. And that brings up a good point that it's also good to keep in contact with your legislators, to let them know when they do pass good legislation. So that's, that's an example of a time to do that. The school to prison pipeline is a long one. There are many stops and many potential entry points and not enough exit points. All along the way, there are racist structures and policies that put the lives of black and brown people at extra risk, threatening lives and inflicting pain over and above any sentence. The bad news is, is that the pipeline and the racist structures are still in place. The hopeful news is that some movement has happened since January. It is yet to be seen if these measures will provide significant changes or are wishful thinking. As Latricia has just indicated, funding for Raise the Age uh, was provided for in Senate Bill 53. After two years of waiting, local communities will have the funds assuring 17-year-olds are not subjected to adult prison. But there was a lot more in the Senate Bill 53. Most of it was under the radar and printing out just the summaries is 12 pages long. And while these provisions do not fully break the pipeline, there are some potentially steps in the right direction. As we know, those in authority will try to evade responsibility, so we need to keep our eyes out. These are only tools. They need to be used properly, and there is much more that needs to be done. So here's some highlights from Senate Bill 53. First off is the Juvenile Waiver of Right to Counsel. This provision restricts the circumstances when a child can waive the right to a lawyer. This is important because authorities have been known to promise frightened children the ability to see parents or to go home if they give up their right to a lawyer. This is a sick practice that ends up putting more kids behind bars, flooding the pipeline, and including when they have not even committed a crime. But according to the new law, if there is a waiver of counsel, it shall be made knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily, which shall be determined by the total of the circumstances, including the child's age, background, experience, emotional stability, and the complexity of proceedings. Such a waiver shall only apply in that proceeding and any subsequent proceedings, the child needs to be reminded of his or her right to counsel. 
And it further goes on to restrict waiving counsel for the following proceedings, a detention hearing, a, certif a certification or a dismissal hearing, any adjudication hearing for any misdemeanor or felony offense, and at a disposal hearing or a hearing on a motion to modify or revoke supervision. Let's move on to expungement of records. Even after serving the required sentence, a person with a conviction on their record can be, can be denied employment or housing. Expungement re removes that conviction from a person's record, so mm. it will not come up when a background check is done. Mm. This is an issue that our partners at Expo St. Louis, ex-incarcerated persons organizing, have advocated for. Expungement allows a person to fully return to participation in society, but obtaining that expungement is a difficult process. This law makes the process a little bit easy. First of all, it allows the expungement of a specific conviction, even if the person has prior convictions. Secondly, it, acts, it adds the act of a person who has committed the offense of unlawful use of weapons to be eligible for expungement. Thirdly, this act reduces the time a person must wait to petition for expungement. For a felony, the waiting time is reduced from seven years to three years. And for a misdemeanor, it's down from three years to one year. This allows a person to get back to normal life much sooner. There is still much more that can be done in future legislation to expand who can apply for this and to make the process more efficient. If you're interested, keep a watch on Expo St. Louis because they're on top of this issue. Respiratory chokeholds. This act provides that the law, uh, law enforcement officer shall not knowingly use rep respiratory chokeholds unless there is a, an issue of the officer or another person being in serious physical injury or death. The respiratory chokehold includes the use of any body part or object to attempt to control or disable by applying pressure to a person's neck with the purpose of controlling or restricting their breathing. Again, this is something that, be, that our law enforcement officers may try to get around, but it is now in law. Motion to vacate. Under current Missouri law, even if a prosecutor or a circuit attorney knows that a mistake was made and that a, a the wrong person was convicted and sent to prison, they cannot undo that mistake, even if they have the evidence that that person was wrongly convicted. For instance, Lamar Johnson has been in prison since mm. 1994 after being wrongly convicted of murder. Once this law goes into effect, Kim Gardner would now have the authority to begin the process of righting this wrong, and there is now a path to freedom for Mr. Johnson and others. Offense, to failure, offense of failure to execute a warrant. This was an interesting one. Did you know that a police officer could be charged with a crime if he or she does not arrest someone who has an outstanding warrant for a traffic misdemeanor? Aggressive arrests for outstanding traffic offenses is a way that mass incarceration has been sent into overdrive, throwing people into prison for simply being unable to pay. This new provision allows an officer to forego the arrest, allowing the person to continue to hold their job, support their families and remain free. Unfortunately, this does still leave the decision in the hand of the officer, and that remains troubling. And finally, peace officer licensure, commissioning requirements for peace officers and police use of force database. This is a mouthful. What it does is it requires police officers to be fingerprinted and go through the same background checks that we require of your teachers and then have to do it every six years. This includes background checks with the FBI. Before being hired at a new police department, an officer's previous department must provide information on why they left. 
This is intended to cut down on bad cops jumping from one department to another without any repercussions. And finally, police departments will be required to report incidents incidents when officers use force. Those reports must be submitted Mm -hmm. to the state and federal governments and the state must share those results with the public. Those are just the highlights of Senate Bill 53. We are still waiting for the signature from the governor to put these policies into place. But that's not the only place where our legislators have been busy. I'm going to turn things over to Lisa Thompson, who will bring us up to date on issues that impact our children in the classroom. Lisa? Thanks, Kevin. I'm Lisa, and I came to MCU many years ago as a member of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church in Tower Grove South. In addition to being a member of the Legislative Task Force, I am a member of the Education Task Force. My education credentials are that I taught in a public high school for 28 years. I'm a public school graduate and the mother of two grown daughters who attended public schools in the city of St. Louis and in Maplewood Richmond Heights uh, School District. My oldest daughter now is a teacher at MRH Elementary. I'm going to tell you about a piece of legislation that I find concerning. For full transparency, this is not an official MCU opinion. Our education task force did not take a position on this because they focus, we focus our energy on advocating for equitable and restorative discipline policies in the St. Louis area. However, MCU has always supported the concept of public money being used for the common good. And that includes working to be sure that our communities have high quality public schools. Whether or not you choose a public school for your own children is a private decision impacted by lots of factors. My concern with this piece of legislation, HB 349, is that I believe it's a backdoor way to use public funds to support private education. For years, Missouri legislators have refused to maintain our highways and bridges. They've gone against voters and refused to expand Medicaid. They've set eligibility levels for safety net programs like food stamps and childcare subsidies so that Missouri is one of the least generous states in the nation. And they have never fully funded public education. But now they agree we can cut Missouri's general revenue by helping pay for private education. That doesn't sit well with me. If I believed this money would really help economically under-resourced families and children with special needs, as the supporters have alleged, I might be more comfortable with it. But it actually looks like the people who are going to benefit are predominantly those who already could afford to pay private school tuition. A couple of friends of mine who, mine who attend my church and are parents of children in St. Louis public schools have been working to stop this legislation. Unfortunately, they're both traveling and weren't able to join us tonight, but they have uh, given me permission to share their words. Christy wrote this letter to her legislators and I'm gonna read from that. My eight-year-old daughter is a creative and bold spirit. She writes stories, has a beautiful singing voice and stages musical performances with her friends. I'm not telling you these things because I believe Josie is special to be elevated above her peers, but because every child is just as special. Every child deserves an education that nurtures their individual talents, 
that will give them a place in the world as contributing citizens. This cannot be done in a district with a low tax base that is further stripped of funds due to school choice. Christy writes, I want all girls and boys in this district to have enough resources to have a nurse attend to their ills daily. At Josie's school, a nurse is there two days a week. These children need a safe and lead-free environment to learn and play and the resources to remediate environmental toxins in a timely manner. This isn't being done with our current budget and as of now, lead stays on our playgrounds. All our children deserve experienced long-term teachers who stay in the district and see our children grow. Teachers who are connected to and invested in the community. Of the five teachers that Josie had during her four years in school, only one is still working for St. Louis Public Schools. And her school has had three different principals. All the Josies of the world, world who are creative and daring need schools that can nurture talents that fall outside the core subjects and can be enriched through offerings of drama, band, orchestra, and choir. And all of these are offered in upper elementary grades at county school. Josie's school has had a 100% turnover in art, music, and PE teachers. Parents who are unable to use school choice or who are committed to public neighborhood schools expect public schools that are not stripped of financial resources. Their children deserve well-funded public schools that benefit all children and society in general. My other friend, Heather MacArthur, who's been a board member with MCU, attended an informational meeting about uh, this legislation. She said that at that meeting, Representative Peter Meredith noted that during the session, he and other legislators heard from far more parents who supported this type of legislation than those who opposed it. Heather went on to say that this should be a wake up call to those of us who support public schools across Missouri. We need to organize ourselves to support properly funded education for all. This law actually only applies to urban areas, Casey, St. Louis, Cape, Joplin, Jeff City, Springfield. I'll leave it to you to figure out why that might be. The scholarship program will go into effect unless the governor vetoes this bill. Now to look ahead to next year. Here's why we need your involvement and we need you to talk to your legislators. Um, the Education Task Force, and then probably eventually the Legislative Task Force, will be working on two issues related to uh, legislation. At the May meeting of the Education Task Force, Representative Ian Mackey asked us to work with him on legislation eliminating the use of suspension and expulsion for kindergarten through third grade students. The task force has worked with area school districts already to advocate for this policy and will be helping to craft the legislation and develop support for it so that children will be able to stay in a classroom where they and their teachers have the resources needed so that all children can learn. Secondly, many of you are probably aware of the efforts across the country and in the St. Louis area to keep kids from learning shared or nation's shared stories of confronting injustice and building a more perfect country. Just this week, because the legislature will not meet until midway through the 21-22 school year, Senator, State Senator Mike Moon from Ashgrove delivered a letter to the governor urging him to issue an executive order immediately banning schools from teaching 
these destructive topics related to racism. 67 members of the Missouri General Assembly signed that letter in support of this request. Assuming the governor doesn't do an executive order, we're gonna be fighting this issue next year. So while you're on the phone to the governor's office, I hope you'll also mention um, that we do not support limiting history uh, teaching in schools and please come work with the education task force too. And I'm going to turn this over now to Terry, who's going to talk a little bit about uh, Medicaid expansion and introduce a guest. Thanks, Lisa. Um, I appreciate it. Um, let's start off with James Coleman. He's from Springfield, Missouri, and has been impacted uh, by the lack of Medicaid expansion. So I think it's good to hear James' story. Uh, and then there's some other technical points I'd like to go over at the end of that. So go ahead, James. Well, well, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to give my story tonight. I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm expressing my concern for the 225,000 plus Missourians that do not have access to proper health care, including myself. Medicaid expansion will grant us access to that proper health care that we so desperately need. There are people dying, which can be prevented if they are granted access to better health care via the expansion. I have not been able to work for a couple of years due to my own health issues that has per prevented me from going back to the workforce. I've been diagnosed with neuralgia parasitica, which causes severe nerve pain in my thighs. Uh, it, limits, and it limits my mobility to walk sometimes, as well as some problems with my left knee because I'm getting a lot of pain in my left knee that I need to get checked out. And uh, I've also been diagnosed with PTSD, bipolar disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder that I need, I need to get all that addressed. Without getting proper health care, I'm unable to get these concerns addressed properly because I'm unable to afford any tests or procedures that I need in order to go back to work, which I'm very much wanting to do. With the expansion being implemented, I would be able to get my health concerns addressed properly, which would put me on the road to recovery and allow me to be a productive citizen once again. My long-term goal is to obtain self-sufficiency by gaining employer-based insurance that would replace the Medicaid and therefore could help someone else in need so they can go back to work and become self-sufficient as well. Without expansion, clinics and hospitals are unable to expand their services. Rural hospitals that have closed are unable to reopen and be available for the citizens of those rural areas. Currently, many rural Missourians are having to travel longer distances to get their health care addressed which can potentially be life-threatening in an emergency situation. 
Lack of expansion can put more rural hospitals at risk for closure throughout the whole state of Missouri, which would cause job losses of the healthcare providers that serve those areas, putting the citizens of those areas at a greater risk of severe health problems down the line due to not having the proper care that is needed. We need Medicaid expansion to get our fellow Missourians healthier, happier, and be able to rejoin the workforce and be prosperous so that we may continue to build the economy back up in our state. Uh, we need this expansion implemented as it is the right thing to do, the moral thing to do, and the just thing to do. It can and will save lives. I thank you for allowing me to speak. Thank you, James. That was great. I really, you touched on a lot of points, both personal and uh, statewide and, and uh, people that are going to be impacted. I, I just wanted to talk about a couple little technical points because it, it gets a little confusing uh, when you talk about Medicaid expansion. There's really two separate things that came up this year. Uh, the uh, FRA, which is the federal reimbursement allowance, has been around since really Medicaid has been in existence. And that has been approved every year for, I don't know, 20 years, I think, uh, sort of as just a rote deal. And what happened this year, though, was that the uh, a couple of very conservative uh, congressmen, representatives, actually in the Senate, from the Senate, from the St. Charles area, decided that they wanted to keep all funding to, to uh, go to Planned Parenthood, and they also wanted to add in some birth control measures. Things like IUDs could not be paid for uh, through uh, through Medicaid on this normal FRA. And the problem with that is that may have been, if those things would have been implemented, that those may have been a killer from the federal point of view because those are covered, which would have then meant the at some point the federal government could have said, "Well, you're not following our guidelines. We're not going to give you any money." That was finally uh, passed, and that's what that special session was all about. Uh, was it the week before last? Uh, it was a week long, and it, it did get passed, but it there was kind of some muddied waters there. Um, so the the Planned Parenthood issue, uh, they did not stop funding for Planned Parenthood, but they did put some some, some birth control issues uh, in, saying that, like for instance, an IUD can be paid for, but it can't be used to provide for uh, any kind of abortion-like issue by, by the user. But, you know, it's really basically not enforceable. Um, so, and, and I think the, the best idea of, of the success of at least getting what got through was that uh, one of the sponsors in the Senate, uh, Senator Onder from St. Charles said that it was the worst bill that he's ever seen go through the very legislature. So uh, since he was so against it, it must be pretty decent. But the second part of this is uh, Medicaid expansion, which uh, 38 states have uh, have approved, and it brings money in. And, and James touched on a lot of the issues that what it will provide for 275,000 people and that it'll bring able to keep uh, some rural hospitals in business. At one point, 
uh, Governor Parson said he would just he would make sure it went through because the people voted for it. You had fifty three percent of the people in the state of Missouri that got to put into the Constitution, and that was done by a lot of hard work by people going out getting uh, petitions signed so that uh, it, it would get voted on. And then once it was voted on, like I said, 53% of the people in Missouri approved it, but they didn't want to implement it and pretty much just sort of ripped it apart piece by piece. Even after that, for one day, Governor Parson said that he would find a, an administrative way to have that uh, money. Somebody apparently got to him because second day he said, no, he's not going to, to do that. So it went into the courts. Um, the last, uh, Judge Beatum said that he sided with the state and the governor did not have to approve the money. And that's being appealed and it will go to the Missouri Supreme Court next Tuesday, July 13th at 11 a.m. in Jefferson City. And it's an open court if anybody wants to uh, wants to go with what, what goes down there. That pretty much covers everything about Medicaid expansion. Of course, if you have any questions, you know, put, put them in the chat. And this is where all of you come in. Alan's going to talk some about calls to action. So, yes, I get to be the one to uh, give you some homework to do. Right. And I, I'm really excited about that because I've enjoyed learning a lot about how the state legislature works over these last several months. I've loved uh, just being able to work with the, the folks on the task force and, and help us figure out ways that we can do more to hold those people in Jefferson City accountable. And so let's get into it. But I want to start by saying that all God's children have a place in the choir and we want to get more people singing. We want you to join us in our mission to expand the public sphere, where racial equity is a key operating principle and not just a campaign slogan, where the government and the economy are truly built to be of, by, and for the people. It's important that we remember that our laws and our policies are created by people just like you and me. When we have bad laws and policies around the school-to-prison pipeline problem, kids suffer. When we have bad laws and policies that don't care about our environment, people mm -hmm. suffer. We need to remember that bad laws don't just come up from hell. They get written and they get voted on by people who benefit from those bad laws, who try to pit us against each other to fight over scraps while they make off with a lion's share of money and power. We will get better laws when we elect better people and we hold them accountable to our demands for a better society. We will get better people into office by joining together with others locally and exerting force on political systems, even when those systems don't want to change. Ultimately, this work is up to us, to you and to me. We get better laws when we have a better choir. But just like in other choirs, we don't all sing the same thing in the same way. We have different parts that we each take up, and they combine together to create something that moves us with its power. So I'm going to list four things, 
And we want each of you to commit to at least one of those. Commit to all four if you're up for a challenge, but we want everyone to leave tonight with at least one that they publicly commit to. The four things are to get to know your representative and your senator in Jefferson City, to stay vigilant about what's coming in legislation. The third thing is to join a monthly meeting with MCU. We have several opportunities for that. The fourth thing is that we have put together a legislative toolkit that you can use. And I'm going to break each of those four things down uh, in a little bit more detail. But just so you know, the four things, get to know your state representative and state senator, be aware, and be mindful of what's coming in terms of legislation, join a monthly meeting, sign up for a toolkit, one, two, three, four. So number one, how do you get to know your state representative and state senator? As with any relationship, probably a good place to start is by making sure you know their names and they know yours. You can go to house.mo.gov or senate.mo.gov. They each have legislator lookups and either website will tell you both your representative and your senator. So you can go to either of those sites and find uh, where their find your representatives uh, links are. The Senate will have it at the top in a leg, uh, at a legislator lookup tab, and the House will have it down on their main page. You know what their names are. Once you know that, call their offices. Those phone numbers are on the House and Senate pages, and you can tell them what you care about. And you can ask them what their priorities are. And then you want to decide, do their priorities match mine? And if not, you've got some work to do to bring them onto your side. Also, remember that when you call, you're most likely to talk to a legislative assistant, not to the representative or senator directly. And those people are really important. They also take a lot of um, junk, we'll say, from some people who call and are very angry. So make sure that you're kind to the legislative assistants. Their names are also on those House and Senate pages for each legislator. And so it can be great if you just mention their name or the first time you call ask, is this so-and-so? Um, and so that can be a really helpful way to build that relationship in a positive manner, even if you're calling because you're upset about something. I also recently heard a state representative say that they really love getting to know their constituents and that it's much easier to do when they're not in session. Well, they're not in session now, so I took that to heart, and I'm actually going to be meeting with my state representative in a couple of weeks. I'll have some things to ask her about. I'll have some things to tell her. I'm hoping that she'll be a strong ally in our work here at MCU, but I can't know that unless I talk with her about it. You can do this too. It may seem scary at first. It does. I, it will seem scary at first, right? But sometimes it's just worth doing because the damage that's done when we don't act is that other people can suffer. We can suffer when we don't act and we are worth fighting for. We can do this with our personal legislators and we can also connect with the legislators who are over where our congregations are. So I live in Northwest St. Louis County, but my church is in South St. Louis City. 
So I've got two different ends of the St. Louis region that I can talk to, and they both need to answer to me because they both impact my life and their work will affect my comings and goings. So that's number one, get to know your state rep and state senator. Number two is to stay vigilant about what's coming. In terms of special or extraordinary sessions, we've already had one of those this year. Terry mentioned it already, where a handful of ideological extremist legislators threatened the funding for our neighbor's health insurance while they tried to position themselves for their next election opportunity. Well, that's come and gone, but there will be more special sessions this year. We know that there will be one about congressional redistricting. This happens every 10 years, and that data has not totally been made available yet. Things are a little slow. And so when that happens, the state legislature will come together, and they're the ones responsible for drawing the congressional maps. You can provide input to your legislators. You can also go to the Missouri Mapping Project page. That website will take you to a place where you can give input to, uh, to a nonprofit that will take in what everyone says about what, what are the boundaries of my community? What's, when I think of my community, how far does it go? And this data will be used for uh, legislative redistricting especially, but it will also impact congressional redistricting. There are also possibly going to be special sessions on other topics. There have been over a dozen calls from different legislators on things that they really want to see happen, from violent crime to Kansas City police districts to one that's really important to me, voting rights and ballot initiatives. Because again, some legislators seem to prefer their own power over you and me having a say in what our government does. They've tried to overturn Medicaid expansion, which we passed with a ballot initiative. Over and over, Missouri residents and voters have said, we don't want right to work here in Missouri. And over and over, the legislature tries to say, eh, too bad, we're going to try and pass it anyway. So their plan is to make it harder to pass ballot initiatives, either raising the dollar amounts for those or raising the signature threshold or raising the vote threshold, whatever it takes for them to take away our power. And so we need to be ready to stop that. If, if you hear a call for a special session on voting rights or ballot initiatives, know that MCU is going to be in that fight to say no, People deserve the power, not their politicians. How do you follow all this, though? You're not in Jefferson City all the time. You're not there on the floor of the, the Capitol building waiting to hear what's coming down. It's really hard sometimes, and there's so much that can come at you. But state and local news sources, even though they can sometimes struggle to stay in business, are a great source of insight for what's happening in state and regional politics. And so you can follow along there. Many of those will also offer podcasts or other digital content, some non-traditional ways to get information to you. If you dare, you can go onto Twitter as well. It's a really good place to pay attention to what's going on politically. You can follow the hashtags, those things that start with the pound sign. And if you search for hashtag M-O-L-E-G, Moledge, 
or M-O-G-O-V or M-O-S-E-N, you can see what people are saying about the state legislature, the governor, the state senate, all kinds of things. You can follow people and you may get into some fights, but if you can stomach that, it's a really good place to keep up with what's going on. If you want to track legislation from when it's filed to when it passes or fails in the legislature to when it's signed by the governor, our favorite tool for that is Fast Democracy. It's an app that allows you to, to select specific bills or topics to follow, and you can track state and congressional legislation. As an added bonus, and I think this is so cool, it was built by people here in Missouri and is used all over the country. As you're following news and tracking legislation, you can do this by yourself, but it's often really helpful to do it with a group. Remember that in order to change the way things are, we need more power. We almost never have enough power by working alone. We need other people. And so think about who in your congregation might be interested in helping build a better world with you. There are also groups out there not in your congregation, but in other places that are working to build the kind of world that you might like to see. Some of those groups are partisan. If that's something you're interested in, you can find groups of Democrats or Republicans or other parties who are strategizing around state legislation. Some groups are nonpartisan. Usually those are organized around issues. Our friends at Missouri Jobs with Justice are tracking legislation around workers' rights and labor practices. If fair housing is one of your main interests, groups like KC Tenants or EHOC will give you something to do, I promise. And of course, we here at MCU are working towards stronger environmental justice, a more engaged voting population, and criminal justice issues like breaking the school-to-prison pipeline. So that's number two. Pay attention to what's going on and try to find someone to work with. Number three, join our monthly meetings. So if MCU is something that you're interested in, I promise you, we have a choir that is ready for you to join and take your place in it. I joined our Break the Pipeline Legislative Task Force because I wanted to connect with a group who was already doing work in our community around influencing the state legislature. If that's something you're interested in, you can join our choir second Thursday of each month at seven o'clock. If legislation isn't your thing, maybe you want to take a look at how schools can improve the ways they help their students thrive. You've already heard about our education task force a little bit, and they would love for you to join them. Are you a talented communicator? We've got a team for that. The last group that I'll mention is maybe the most important. If there's a young person in your life or in your family who's in the, ju who's in the juvenile justice system, and you're looking for some people to help you work through a list of processes that probably were not meant to, to give you your best interests and to keep your, that kid's best interests in mind, our participatory defense team is here for you. You can text hashtag love youth to 31996 to connect with an organizer and learn more. And maybe all those specific things sort of muddle together in your heart. Maybe you're not sure which one you want to focus on because they all sound good. If you're just not sure you want to talk it through with somebody, we'll find a way to connect with you and help you find your best fit in the work that we're doing. 
So that's number three. Join an MCU team and come work with us. Come do the work with us. The fourth thing that you can do is sign up for our toolkit. We've put together something to help congregations use to make scheduling a meeting with your legislators easier. This will help you meet with your legislators from city council all the way up to Congress and figure out what kind of meeting you want to put together, who you need there to make your meeting the most successful, how to plan it, how to be ready so that you can do your best work to make the world that you want to create. It's the kind of, it's the kind of world that Pastor Wendy talked about at the beginning, the kind of world where every person created in God's image has enough. And we will turn it over now to Lisa and she will lead us through the Q&A section. So I think we just have one question so far um, and that was from Elizabeth and um, it was related to what Kevin talked about. Um, and so maybe either he or Latricia will know this. If not, we, we may have to look it up for her. Uh, do the changes to the motions to vacate that Kevin mentioned apply to the juvenile court also? Elizabeth, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, my guess is that, uh, well, first I'll say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to it, but what that change does is give power to prosecutors to actually pursue the, the motion to vacate. So my assumption would be that yes, it does, but when it comes to the law, sometimes the law needs to be specifically uh, stated. So the, the real answer is probably, I don't know. We'll have to have to look that one up. Thanks. I, the more I learn about juvenile court, the more I find it to be so confusing. Um, so like DJOs as prosecutors, but mm -hmm. their role is so much more murky. Like that's why I was wondering. Thank you for looking into that. That's so true. It's a learning process, Elizabeth, that uh, especially the, what the GJO sounds like should be on the kid's side, but it usually doesn't turn out that way. Um, yeah. And I feel that's like, that's often how they're presented as being on the, on the kid's side when they're actually the prosecutor. Right. Exactly. So. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a dicey world of words out there. <laughs> So Mary Kuhn uh, posted in our chat that there's a specific group uh, that does work with the juvenile justice centers and that's called the Episcopal City Mission. That would be a resource. Um, also, uh, Latricia is, is part of our uh, juvenile justice task force and that's something we can look into also. To be honest with you, it's a new law, so we will have to do some research for that. So thank you for your patience on that one. And that might actually bring us to some, some things we need to wrap up on too. But before we finish this evening, some big thank yous. Thank you to Alan Harris-Dalt for pulling this event together and leading our legislative task force. Thank you to Reverend Wendy Bruner for getting our evening kicked off and reminding us that our, um, our inspiration sits within the prayer that is our foundational prayer as Christians. So that, that was a wonderful reminder. Uh, thank you for Latricia Gandhi for the Raise the Age update and inspiring us over the last few months. If you did not get a chance to join us in the action in Jennings, uh, you missed a great opportunity. There, there will be more to come. So please pay attention to those things. Um, thank you to Lisa Thompson for letting us know about the issues 
facing our public schools and especially the issue coming up uh, that will probably be coming up next session about criminalizing teachers who tell the truth about racism. That's, that's essentially what it will be. We need to pay attention to that. Um, it, it, it's designed to cause a stir in white districts, but what it will end up doing is hurting districts that serve uh, black students uh, when, the, when those teachers tell the truth and we need to defend that. Um, thank you also to Terry for updating us on Medicaid expansion. And thank you very much, James, for your testimony tonight to remind us that what we do has an impact on people's lives. And it, 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 it stifles what you're able to do uh, to be the full human being that, that uh, God wants you to be. So there are, I also want to throw out a couple of reminders before we sign off that there are a couple of events coming up for MCU that we want to share. Uh, coming up on July 24th at 9 a.m., uh, we're going to demand the restoration of our riverside cities. Our communities of color along the river are being destroyed by poor air, land, and water quality. On July 24th, we're bringing our attention to the air. Abolish pollutants in our air, invest in clean energy, restore riverside communities. This event unites both sides of the river in the St. Louis metropolitan region as we join with United Congregations of Metro East. It's an opportunity to bridge the gap between the states and create real environmental justice. We'll be meeting at the McKinley Bridge Roadside Park, Main Street and Cedar Street in Venice, Illinois at 9 a.m. You can find more information on the MCU Facebook page. There's a link there to, to sign up. So I wanna thank you all for joining us. We encourage you to dive into those commitments as soon as you can, don't put it off. Organize meetings with your congressional district and also uh, your local uh, politicians at, at the city level and the county level. Get to know your elected officials, let them know what concerns you the most and that you are paying attention. Then get your friends, your family, your neighbors and your congregations to join you. Our voices are stronger together. Your elected officials are listening and they need to hear from you. We look forward to hearing our elected officials start complaining about all these congregations. They're all of a sudden pushing them on issues to break the school to prison pipeline, fund healthcare and create clean and healthy environments. Thank you very much and have a wonderful evening.